Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. Well, welcome to week three of our series, Jesus Is. As you saw on the chalkboards there, right? everybody has an opinion of who Jesus is. Whether you're an atheist, a believer, Christian, religious, not religious, opinions about Jesus are not in short supply, no matter who you ask. Now, what we write on the line may be different, but in this series, we're kind of taking this approach of going, so we have this benefit of having recorded what we believe or what's attributed to Jesus as as being said by him. So what if we took back our personal opinions? What if we pulled back the line around who we think Jesus is or what our varying opinions of Jesus are? What if we just let Jesus define for us, define for himself who he is, why he came, and what is he about? So we've been going through the Gospel of John, looking at these seven I am statements, as they're called. These are statements where Jesus fills in the blank for us, and he's going to come straight out and say, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what to write in the blank, then here's the answer. And so we've been walking through John together, looking at that. And today we're going to actually do a double whammy. We're going to do two I am statements because Jesus uses one story, one short opportunity, and he defines himself as two different things within the same story, which is really cheating and not very fair of him. Um, But I feel like it's okay, because last week, I don't even remember. Uh, I was barely here. For those of you that were here, thanks for coming back. I appreciate your grace and your mercy there. I'm feeling much better, but uh, because of that, we're going to make up some time, and uh, we're going to do two in one sermon. So yeah, that means it'll take twice as long. We should be home by like one o'clock, I think. Does that work for everybody? Um, We're going to try to kick it on here a little bit, but we do need to get started. So we're going to jump in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Chapter 10, if you're following along, whether you brought a Bible or following along on your smartphone, if you didn't bring a Bible but you'd like to use one of the Worship Center Bibles here, I just encourage you to slip your hands up. Our ushers are walking around now. It's going to be on page 505 if you're using one of these Bibles. Of course, if you don't own a Bible, please just keep this. It's our gift to you. We just want you to have God's Word in your life. So we've also been talking about in this series as we walk through the book of John that as you have time and opportunity to read along with us on the journey, because there's so many things that we can't quite connect the dots. There's so many things that John tells us, and so I've been encouraging you to read along with us. It's not too late to do that. If you read three chapters a day starting today, uh, you'd finish the Gospel of John by Easter next week. If that seems a little too aggressive for you, then start where we're at today in John chapter 10. If you read one chapter, you'll finish up by the middle of next week. But the point is that, that we're talking about so many big things and big concepts here that we just don't have time to go in depth with them. So make sure that you're taking the sermon, what we're just talking about on Sunday mornings and that it finds a place into your weekly and daily rhythms as you reflect on who Jesus is for you personally. So we're going to start out here, John 10, and and Jesus starts with a parable or a story. It's not technically a parable as it's usually qualified, but it's got some some similarities, excuse me, uh, with that. So John chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus starts with a story. He says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but as per usual, they did not understand what he was telling them. So Jesus has to spell it out. Jump down with me to verse 11. Knock, knock, knock. I am the good shepherd. Wake up, people, right? There's your first blank. Jesus is the good shepherd. He always tells these stories. He has these elaborate metaphors that he uses. And eventually, sometimes when we're lucky, he just comes straight out and says it like he does here. Jesus is the good shepherd. And and while that story is a little bit difficult for us to relate to, um, I don't know any shepherds except for Shepherd Adams, um, but not like actual like working with sheep kind of shepherds. And uh, so this might be difficult for us to grasp onto. But shepherds were a well-known part part of the Jewish culture, and not an actual practice per se, as in everybody wasn't a shepherd, but this metaphor of a king being the shepherd of his people was very, very common. As a matter of fact, as we read and reflect on the Old Testament, we see that the Jewish people understood God as their shepherd, God as their leader, and that they were his sheep. So again, here we see Jesus as he's walking along and telling stories. He's, he's not just willy-nilly picking out stories. He has a purpose and a reason, and he inserts himself into the direct idea of who the Jewish people thought God was, labeling himself as the Messiah. He doesn't give us the option to just say, well, he's a good teacher. No, he says in this parable and in other parables, no, I'm actually the very God that you worship. As God is the shepherd of his people, Jesus says, I am also the good shepherd, right? And we've talked about this every single week, but this is how the Jewish people understand or understood who God was. What does that mean to us? How do we understand this concept of a good shepherd, right? We don't work with sheep. We don't have a lot of pasturing experience. At least I don't. I don't know if you do. Um, So how do we relate with this metaphor? So I was kind of studying, trying to figure out how can we relate to this just in our common uh, day-to-day, everyday life. And the easiest way that I found um, is to talk about dogs, so uh, Friday was National Puppy Day. I saw many of your pictures on Instagram, and uh, I didn't put any up. So, so here's my puppy. This is Luna. She is our uh, Great Dane, and that's her at the footboard uh, of our tiny little Honda Civic. So she used to fit um, right down underneath there. Here's a picture just for perspective a few weeks later uh, with our youngest son, Asher, just so you can see kind of how small she was. And, uh, and this is uh, a short, what, like a year and a half later, uh, you can see that she's grown a little bit. So there's her on the couch. And now it's hard to see perspective in that. She's definitely bigger than both my boys combined, but the last picture I think really, really kind of seals the deal, at least for me. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, so that's my, that's my dog. 115 pounds, and uh, if the tail hits you wrong, you will drop faster than somebody in a fight with Mike Tyson. Um, needless to say, Luna can be a little intimidating to our guests, right? Especially to kids, because She's bigger than they are, right? So she's almost two. She still has a lot of puppy energy, which means that I have to have hard conversations when we have guests over. Like, when you're in the backyard running, uh, don't run away from her because she thinks you're playing. And she'll trample you. And uh, it's nothing personal. She just doesn't understand her boundaries. She doesn't understand her size, right? Enter the master. (laughs) 
right? I'm the boss. Luna knows my voice. She listens to me sometimes. Uh, she obeys the commands that I've given her, right? We have a relationship built up. She can recognize my voice in the midst of other voices. She can recognize when I change my voice in order for her to respond to a command or to listen or to stop doing a behavior. She's had a little bit of training about how to respond on a leash and how to respond in a crowd and all of those types of things. And so she responds to my command because I'm the boss, right? I'm the shepherd. I'm the caretaker of her. This is not at all sheep-related, but if you come into my front door and I don't greet you, Luna could quite literally be in your face, like by all standards and definitions. Some of you have walked into our house and you've had that experience. It's been a little intimidating, but if somebody jumps the fence to my backyard, it's not going to go well for them, right? Because she knows that they're not the master, and she knows that they're not coming in through the gate, and so she's going to respond a little bit more vocally than a sheep responds, right? Because she can do more than ba. She can actually make sure that you don't stay in the backyard. So, so here's the point, right? Jesus tells a story about a shepherd, about a, a person who caretakes of animals in a way and understanding in which the animals follow and listen and respond to his voice. And while we may not be farmers, we might not be shepherds, you might not have that experience to draw into. If you've ever had an animal or have friends with an animal, it's a similar relationship. There's a knowledge and a familiarity and a following through with that. So Jesus tells a story about cultural connections between sheep and shepherd, and we miss them because we simply don't have that context. But when it comes to animals in our home, when it comes to following through and obeying and those types of things, maybe can, we can relate just in the smallest portions there with our animals. So verse 3, Jesus says, Look, the watchman opens the gate for him, the shepherd. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So let's talk about shepherds here for just a little bit. I don't know about you, but the, but the visualization that I get when I think about a shepherd is represented by this picture, right? You've got the sheep on the road, and then there's a shepherd in the back, usually with a sheepdog, right? And they're driving the sheep, right? This is how they get the sheep to go in the direction that they want to go. They stand in the back, and they kind of funnel, right? The dog runs along the sides to make sure that they stay in in the direction that they're supposed to go. This is my picture. This is my understanding of shepherding. The, the biblical definition or the biblical example or even the Middle Eastern practices that are still in place today is actually represented by a different picture. And you can see it within the scripture here. He says that he leads his sheep. He doesn't follow behind and drive his sheep. He leads his sheep. So it's actually better represented by this picture. That the sheep know the master's voice. And I was reading about a story of somebody who had visited Israel recently and he remarked on how shepherding worked. He said the shepherds would actually sing a song to their sheep. It was a similar song. They all had similar things. But the, the sheep were tuned in to their master's voice. They would follow what their master told them to do. They would hear his voice. And so when sheep would come into pasture at night, they'd put them in, in a pen and there'd be a gate and all those other things. And to separate them in the morning, all the shepherd had to do was to sing his song and the sheep would follow because they'd spent time following their shepherd walking along the road. So, so here's kind of my point is that a lot of the times we go to this story about Jesus being the good shepherd and, and we somewhat over-spiritualize it or we somewhat misunderstand it because it's just not a familiar world to us. We just don't understand it. We don't have the pictures in place for what Jesus was talking about. But to his first century hearers, this would have just been fact. 
There would have been nothing profound about any of this. Jesus would have just been connecting dots between a very real situation that they already knew and the spiritual principles to correlate with that. But because it's a little difficult for us, we're going to spell it out a little bit this morning. So we're just going to look at some marks of the good shepherd, what it looks like to be a good shepherd. So here are the marks that we see in this passage of being a good shepherd. The first one is that he enters through the gate. He enters through the gate, right? Thieves don't do that. Robbers don't do that. And to enter through the gate, you had to be known by the watchman. See, as the shepherds would bring their flocks into the fold at night, they would have a fenced-in structure. It would probably look something like this picture on the screen. And it's hard to see on the side or on the big screen, but if you can look on the side screens, there's actually a person who's sitting at the gate. So the shepherds, multiple shepherds probably, would bring their flocks into one pasture, into one place, and there would be a guy, a watchman, whose job it was to, to lay down in front of the gate to make sure of two things. Number one, that no sheep got out. And that nobody who wasn't supposed to come in, came in. So to enter through the gate also communicates point number two, that he had to be known by the watchman. He's known by the watchman, the one who is in charge with watching his sheep. John 10, 14, skip down with me a little bit. He spells it out a little bit more clear. He says, I am the good shepherd. He repeats that from verse 11. Twice he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, what's he saying? Just as the one who watches over and protects the sheep, just as the one who has oversight to the sheep full, just as he knows me, just as I know the watchman, so my Father knows me. How do we know that Jesus is a good shepherd? Well, he enters through the gate, which means he's known by the watchman. Also here we see clearly in verse 14, number 3, that he is known by the sheep. They know him. They recognize his voice. They follow him in everything that he does. We saw that in 3 and 4 that, he, that they know his voice, that they follow him. He speaks to them, they hear him, and they obey. Just like your dog listens to you and obeys, not like your cat, because cats do whatever they want all the time. Finally, how do we know that he is a good shepherd? Number four, he loves his sheep. So he enters through the gate. He comes into the pasture the right way because he knows the watchman, the one who's in charge and taking care of his flock. And his sheep know him, and also they know that he loves them. Back up to verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd, right, who owns the sheep. When he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and it scatters. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Now, now step back with me, right? Who's more important, the sheep or the shepherd? Right? Who's more important, my dog or me? Right? I'm, I'm going to get another dog. Right? I love my dog. That's great. I'm going to get another dog. The shepherd loses his sheep. He's going to get more sheep. Right? That's not the big deal. So what's Jesus saying here? Jesus saying, is saying here that his value for the people in his care, the sheep in his care, is so great that even though he is the master, even though he is greater than them, that he willingly chooses to lay down his life, to put his life on the line to defend his sheep, his people, the people of his pasture. Right? So this is the marks of a good shepherd, that his sheep love him and know him, 
that they know that he loves them, that the Father, the watchman, knows him as well, and that he enters in through the gate. And we're going a little bit quick today, again, because we've got two here, but as I arrive at this point, I can't help but wonder. So Jesus defines himself as a good shepherd. He says, this is who I am, this is what it is, but the real question for you and I is not whether or not Jesus is a good shepherd, it's whether or not we are his sheep. It doesn't matter how good of a shepherd Jesus is if we're not his sheep. And Jesus lays out a pretty convincing argument for what it is to be him being the good shepherd. But he also tells us what it looks like to be his sheep, to be those who follow him and know him. So let's go back through the passage now and let's pull out what it means for us to be good sheep. Good sheep know his voice, right? We see that in verse Three. We see that in the example even of current Israeli shepherding processes, right? That they know his voice. He speaks and they're able to articulate that it is their shepherd speaking, not some other shepherd leading them astray. But they don't just know it. Verse 4, good sheep listen. They listen to his voice. They recognize and they lean in. They want to hear what the shepherd has to say. They don't just recognize his voice. They stop when they hear it and they consciously lean in to what their master is saying. Lastly, we see that good sheep follow. That they know his voice, that they hear it and they stop and listen and then they obey. They do what the master Says. And so when it comes to following Jesus, he says, I am the good shepherd. And he defines for us what that role looks like. But he also tells us what it looks like for us to be his sheep, for us to be the people who follow after him, to know his voice, to listen, and to obey. So that's part one of the message. If you need a bathroom break, go take it quick. We're going to dive in. Part number two coming up. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And he articulates what that means. But in the same story, in the same section, the same verse, he also identifies himself as another piece of the story. And I want to spend more of our time here today because today is, is Palm Sunday, right? It's this great high and holy day where we, where we look forward to and prepare for Easter, which is coming up next Sunday. Uh, and this is a day that is celebrated throughout church world, right? It would be, typically there'd be kids singing Hosanna and we'd have palm branches. We're just not that good of a church. Sorry. Uh, we're just not there. But, um, but Jesus says, you know, he has this other I am statement. And he talks about being the gate. And today on Palm Sunday, as we look forward to Easter Sunday, this preparation of the, the Passover week, there's some gates that are involved in the story of the triumphal entry, right? This is what we call Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, celebrated some 2,000 years ago today. But in verse 7, here's what Jesus says. He says, uh, therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. That's our second blank. Jesus says, I am the gate. I'm the gate for the sheep. So in other words, not only am I the shepherd, the caretaker, the one who leads the sheep, but I also lead the sheep in the way that they ought to go. Not, not, only am I, not only am I the one who's leading the sheep, they listen to my voice, they follow me through, but I'm also the way in which to walk through. He compares both of these things. So what does it mean that he's the gate? What does a gate do? What does it do for the sheep? What does it do in the way that we can understand it? Verse 9, again, he repeats himself again. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, and he will come in and go out, and he will find pasture. Interesting that in this short passage, he tells one story with four I am statements. He says, I am the gate twice. 
in verse 7 and verse 9. He also says, I am the good shepherd twice in verse 11 and verse 14. Do you think he's trying to communicate a point here? He's communicating it in every possible way that he can. What did we pick up from verse 9 about him being the gate? He says, all who come through me will be saved. So Jesus is the gate to salvation. The only way, the only appropriate way by which we enter into salvation. He also says he's the gate to pasture. What does pasture represent? Rest, safety, peace, security, eternal life. He says, not only do I lead the sheep, not only am I the shepherd, but I'm the way into peace and rest for the sheep. See, gates are not only entrance points into the sheepfold, but they're actually ways of protection. They keep what is in who's supposed to stay in, and they keep what's supposed to stay out, out. Which may sound a little smothering, right? If you're here this morning and you may be going, man, I don't know that I enjoy being compared to a sheep. Right? Sheep are kind of dumb. I don't like that. I don't know that I like being the gate thing. I don't really like being trapped in. I kind of want to be free roaming. I just want to be out there on my own. And, and this whole Jesus thing sounds a little bit constricting. It sounds a little bit, uh, it sounds a little bit forced. It sounds a little bit uh, trapping. And so let's just say, why in the world is a gate a good thing? Verse 10, Jesus says, the thief, how does the thief come in? Over the walls, right? Not through the gate. He jumps in. He comes in through some other way. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy because he has to avoid the watchman. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. See, the point of the gate is that it preserves life. Point of the gate is that it preserves life. It keeps the things inside of it alive. It keeps the things that want the things inside of it dead outside of it. It's a service of protection. It's a service of love. It protects from thieves who simply want to steal, kill, and destroy. And no matter what you believe about life, no matter what you believe about your life up until this point, there's there's always a gate. There's always something to walk through. There's always a barricade, a barrier that allows people in or out or through. So let's go on an ancient field trip to ancient Israel. The city of Jerusalem uh, is literally a walled city, right? As were all major cities in ancient times. You had to have walls to keep the bad people out. Because what do they do? Still kill and destroy, right? This is the whole MO. And so there were gates and entry points into the city of Jerusalem. There were eight gates in all, and these gates all had different names attached to them. They all had different ideas attached to them, different concepts. So you can see um, my nine-year-old's drawing of, uh, of gates around Jerusalem. Very, very technical, very realistic here, as you can see. Um, but I want you to pay attention to some of the names. Like There's the Damascus Gate. The Damascus Gate is where the road that led to, guess which ancient city? Damascus, you're very smart, astute biblical scholars. Congratulations. Um, Then there's also gates like Herod's Gate, right? Who do you think came in through Herod's Gate? Herod, right? He's the ruler of the land. He's kind of one of the tetrarchs. He also constructs the temple. Herod's a big deal. He gets his own gate. Then there's also gates, look way down at the bottom, uh, like the Dung Gate. What do you think came in and out of the Dung Gate? Yeah, all kinds of livestock and stuff. So here's what I'm saying, right? When you came into the city, different gates represented different parts, where you were coming from, where you were going to, what your purpose was in the city. There was no way into the city without going through a gate. The gates were there to protect and preserve. They were there to maintain life. And as, and as we look at this story, as we dive into a little bit of the triumphal entry, there are two gates that are significant on this day in history. There's the, the Joppa Gate, which is the west 
western gate there, sorry, Reed. Um, the Joppa Gate, which is the western gate, this opens to the sea. This would have been the way that rulers and royalty that the Romans came in. They would sail their ships from Rome. They would land on the coast, and then they would ride into Jerusalem that way. Then the other gate is the, the eastern gate. It kind of dumps right into the temple. This was more religious in purpose. It led to the east of Jerusalem, which was basically desert and nothing. So nothing really came in through there except these people on a religious experience, except the people who were there to actually celebrate the Passover. There was a whole list of psalms. If you flip in your Bible over to psalms, that's called the Psalms of Ascent. And you would sing these songs, these hymns, these worship songs as you walked from Jericho up to the temple in order to offer your sacrifices, either at festival times or at the yearly opportunities where you would bring your savings into. So Jerusalem is covered in gates. It's the only way in, it's the only way out, and which gate you walk through mattered. See, there's a big gate, an honorable gate, that was used and favored by those in power, and then there was the eastern gate that was full of the religious people coming up to celebrate. So today... There are two gates at opposite ends of the town, the eastern gate, the western gate, the mercy gate or the golden gate, as you see on the picture there, and the Joppa gate. And this day that we celebrate, we always talk about the one triumphal entry that's going on on the east side. But there's actually two triumphal entries, two processions going on at the same day, in the same time, at the same exact moment. Let me tell you why. See, Pilate was the ruler of Jerusalem. You know this name, right? Pontius Pilate. He was the overseer of Jerusalem, but he didn't live there, right? Because nobody wants to live there with all those religious people. Yuck. He lived at his beach house, right, on the coast. And so he would live over in Caesarea Philippi, over on the coast where it was nice and there was a nice breeze, but, but it's Passover week, right? So to celebrate the Jewish Passover, you had to come a week before the actual Passover so that you could offer the appropriate cleansing sacrifices, and then you would stay for the festival week of Passover until you celebrated the actual Passover on Saturday. Right? So Pilate comes to Jerusalem. It's not because he's Jewish. It's not because he wants to celebrate the Passover with the Jewish people like a good ruler. No. Instead, he's coming to make sure that the Jews know whose authority they're under. See, the city of Jerusalem was probably about 40,000 people, give or take. But during this one week, the city size would swell to over 200,000 people. And it's a powder keg of religious fervor and of preparation, all of these types of things. And so Pilate comes, and he comes with an entourage, right? He brings the horses, he brings the chariots, he brings the soldiers, and he makes a triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And he comes on the first day of the week, which would be today for us in our understanding, and he comes in in order to be able to celebrate the Passover, but also to make a clear statement, right? I'm the ruler, I'm the one in charge, I'm bringing all of the people, all of the Romans, all the soldiers, all of the authority with me to make sure that nothing happens that shouldn't happen during this celebration, during this religious festival. Now, whenever there was a triumphal entry like this, you should know that it would be common for the Roman officials to kind of buy the crowd off, to, to kind of bribe them a little bit, right? So especially if this were after a war or if the person coming in had particularly good news, that should be a buzz Bible word for you, that if they had good news to share, euangelio, where we get our word evangelism, then they would want a crowd there to drum up all the things that were going on. So they would pay the crowd to say things like, Hosanna, save us, please. 
So you've got one side of the city on this eastern gate with all the pomp and circumstances, Pilate coming in with the whole entourage behind him, and a crowd gathering not only to see the spectacle, but also to give homage to the ruler, Pontius Pilate. Contrast that with the second triumphal entry, the one that perhaps you know, the one that is more religious in nature, right? Where are the Jews who are coming to celebrate the Passover making their entry? Are they coming through the western Joppa gate with all the Romans, or are they making the religious trials of ascent up from Jericho and coming in through the eastern gate, the golden gate, the mercy gate? So Jesus comes in through this eastern gate. We know that because of where he starts today, where he ends his day, all of these types of things. And, and I just don't want you to miss this contrast, right? As he enters into the triumphal entry, he's not coming with Roman citizens. He's not coming with horses and chariots. What's he come riding in on? A donkey, a colt, the, 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 the son or the, the, the infant of a horse. He doesn't come in power. He doesn't come to remind the Jewish people that he's a ruler. No, he comes on a symbol of peace. The people sing Hosanna to him, not because they were paid to, but because they recognized that this triumphal entry coming in through their gate, through their understanding of Passover, was so different than what Pilate represents and the Roman Empire coming in through the other gate. Jesus comes in through the eastern gate as they celebrate and as they sing, and the processions are so similar, but they're so different. One comes to enact the, the procession, one enacts laws that puts the other one to death. One comes to observe the Passover, and one comes to become the Passover lamb. See, no matter what, in order to enter into the city of Jerusalem, you had to come through a gate. But at no other point in history than at this day that we celebrate, does the gate that you come through communicate something about your purpose for being in the city. Jump back with me to our story. So Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the way in. I'm the way into eternal life. And all who enter will find rest and refuge and peace. But there is another gate. There is another way into eternity that is not led by a good shepherd who loves his sheep. But it is guarded by thieves and robbers who only seek to steal, kill, and destroy. As we approach Easter, there are two processions going on. One that leads to physical life, but ultimately to spiritual death. And another one represented by Jesus that would lead to physical death in the very weak, but ultimately to spiritual life. See, and, and we live in a world that says that any gate is fine. Any direction, any entry point is fine. All that matters is the destination. We all need to respect each other. Your truth isn't my truth. And so long as we all walk along the same path, so long as we all wind up in Jerusalem for the festival, it's all really okay. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm the gate. I'm, I'm the way in. I'm the path that leads to eternal life. And I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who leads you through that gate. And the purpose is not to trap you in some, in some festival, in some religious trappings. The purpose is to protect and preserve your very life. But our friends, our neighbors, people who fundamentally believe different than us are choosing a different gate. A gate that's represented by stealing, killing, and ultimately destruction. So, so here's my question for us, church, as we wrestle with and kind of wrap our heads around this concept, is what do we do with this idea? What do we do with this idea of two entries? And Jesus says, I am the gate, I'm the way in. If you want to know what my answer is, my answer is to try and lead people 
to a shepherd who loves them, who knows them, who calls to them, who wants them to respond to his voice, and who has a gate, a pathway, a procession, a triumphal entry to lead them in to. Too, too often our approach with our friends and our neighbors, people who believe differently than us, is that we tend to adopt a, a worldly style approach. That's fine. You, you do you. I'm going to do me. And if our paths cross, then so be it. I understand it's very politically correct. I understand that's very appropriate. I understand it's very understanding and tolerant. And all of those things are great virtues to an extent. Unless you believe that the gate that they're walking through is a gate that leads them to death, spiritually. Unless you believe the, the words that Jesus says, look, I'm the gate, I'm the way in, I'm the good shepherd. And if we actually take him seriously about that, I think that our motivation for inviting people to join us for Easter would be a little different. Because it's not just about, hey, come to church. It's not just about, join me on this thing. It's not just about, my church celebrates this thing, and so we're going to do it. It's actually like, hey, I care for you, and I believe that the only way into eternal life, the only way to enter in is through this good shepherd who calls himself Jesus, and he doesn't do it to, to pigeonhole you or to get you stuck or any of those things. He actually invites you into life, and, and you're my friend, you're my neighbor, and I want what's best for you, and this is what I believe to be best for you. I don't know what's scary or intimidating about that other than the fact that it actually puts our belief system on the line. It actually puts to the test whether or not we're, we're following this good shepherd, whether or not we're walking on a path towards eternal life, or whether we're just going to walk whatever path is before us. See, Jesus defines himself for us. He says, this is, this is who I am. This is what I am about. If you want to follow me, this is what that looks like. But he also doesn't force the chalk in our hands. He still says, but you have to decide for yourself who I am to you. And too often we think that no matter what you write in the blank, it's all going to end up okay when it's all said and done. But Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm the gate. And while the choice is yours, what you write in the line, the, the actual responsibility is to recognize who he is, who he claims to be, and what he is about. There are two triumphal entries that happen today. They happen every day in our lives. They happen at Easter. They happen at Christmas. They happen every Sunday, every Monday, every time you walk into work, every time you have a conversation with another human being. And it matters which gate we walk through. Because one is life and the other is death. And Jesus being the good shepherd guides you and I to and through himself. The gate to eternal life. So as we have this one week until Easter, two just simple questions. Right? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your good shepherd? Is he your gate? Are you actually his sheep, or do you just resonate with the story, but the listening, the knowing his voice, and the following through and obeying are maybe things that are for more advanced people in their spiritual walk? People who, like, read their Bible every day, all those kinds of crazy things. 
Who is Jesus to you, actually? Who do you write in the blank? And the second question is that you all have people in your life who have opinions about Jesus, and they're not, and they're not hard to find. Nobody is bashful or unashamed about what they believe in this right, but we're bashful, perhaps ashamed, to have the conversation. Who is Jesus to you, and who is Jesus to those people that you care the most about? Friends? Family, neighbors, coworkers, do they know that Jesus is the gate? Do they know that he's there to preserve their life and protect them, that he wants to spend eternity with them, that his love for them is so fierce that it's like a hurricane? What a terribly politically incorrect song. Yet this is the love that we profess of the good shepherd has for us. Who is Jesus to you? And who is Jesus to the people who are closest to you? I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'd invite you just to bow your heads briefly with me. I don't know what resonated, what stuck out with you. I don't know if God laid a person on your heart or a people on your heart or if he convicted you about your own reliance on him as your shepherd or on the gate. But just as we go into a time of worship, I would encourage you to process through. What did God say to you? What did you hear? Do you know his voice? Can you listen to that voice? Can you obey what he said for you to do? Maybe you're still on the fence with that and you just need to kind of know that he's a good shepherd, that he loves you, that he has what's best for you and that what's best for you is that you would walk along a path that leads you through a gate. Maybe as we were speaking, you were convicted or had the opportunity to hear and to listen to the ways in which God might speak to you about those people who are closest to you. Areas that perhaps you wouldn't feel the most comfortable having conversation and yet he laid somebody on your heart and he laid this conversation of your heart and going, man, if they're going through the wrong gate, if they're going into the wrong procession, if they're following a pathway that doesn't lead them to life, maybe you're the only person who will reach out and care for them enough to tell them about a good shepherd who loves them. And I'm not saying you have to, you have to pull out your Bible and indoctrinate them there on the spot. I'm, I'm saying egg them. I'm saying just bless them. Invite them to an Easter egg hunt. Everybody wants to do an Easter egg hunt on Easter, and they'll probably put up with church for that purpose. Heavenly Father, God, this is, uh, there's a lot here, right? One story, two, uh, two I am statements, and God, it's confusing for us because we don't resonate with this idea of sheep and shepherd. God, it's hard for us to grasp onto, but would you make it clear to us? In our own walk with you, God, are you our shepherd? Are you our gate? Are you leading us and are we following you into the ways of eternal life? Or are there areas where we're listening but not following, where we hear your voice but we're not willing to do what you tell us? God, convict us of those areas. Give us time, space, and opportunity to discuss them, to enact on them, and to make a difference. And God, as it comes to our friends and our neighbors, God, people who are on differing paths, God, would you give us the spiritual wisdom and insight to have conversations that perhaps you're challenging us to have? Would you lead us into a place where we can have those conversations that are filled with grace and filled with love and wanting to protect and preserve their life, not wanting to trap them in or to reduce their freedoms, but to introduce to them a good shepherd who loves them and a gate and a pathway that will lead them to the most fulfilling kind of life that exists? but that's only found in you. It doesn't exist anywhere else. God, convict us of where we failed to believe that ourselves and help and allow us to be a voice of wisdom and reason and love 
and to those who are closest to us. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. It is in your name and all God's kids said. Stop us, nothing can hold us down.